We turn together in God's Word today to Matthew chapter 3, picking up in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. We welcome those visiting here and also online. We continue today to go through our series in the book of Matthew titled, Look at the Savior. That's what we want and we pray for all of us that we will see Jesus and enjoy Christ and be changed to be more like him. Hear now God's word. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Augustine once said, God is the wealth of a person's soul. Not money, not anything else. The doctrine of the Trinity is the supreme treasure that God unfolds of himself in revealing himself to us in his word. As Isaiah 40 says, I talked to one of you on the phone about Isaiah 40 this week. To whom will you liken me, God says? To what will you compare me? The answer, of course, is no one. Today, loved ones, we want to see what God reveals of himself to us in this passage as the three persons of the Trinity are acting together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. We want to see what this passage teaches us about God. But we also want to not just think about this propositionally. We want to ask, what does this mean for us? As pastors Scott Swain and Michael Barrett and Charles Barrett say, all of them excellent work on the Trinity. I'll be quoting them here this morning. They say the foundation of Christian experience is the Trinity. It is with this one God that we commune. We have fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We never move beyond this. God in three persons, we sang it, right? Blessed Trinity, in a divine way beyond our understanding, we glorify this one God 
whose greatness is unsearchable. And as we see today, the Trinity is central to our salvation, to the gospel itself. There is no gospel apart from the triune God, and, of course, central to our salvation. First, we want to look at this beginning point of the forerunner of the Christ. Who's that? Well, kids, it's John the Baptist. We pick up here in verse 11 where we left off. The days of John the Baptist were among the darkest days in the history of Israel, reminding us that no matter how dark our days or your circumstances, God can overrule it all. The history of the church reminds us of that, doesn't it? In the midst of persecution, the church often flourishes and grows the most. Don't ever judge, loved ones, God's power and ability by our present circumstances or by what's around us. In the very darkest night, God can prepare to do his brightest work. We see that with John. In the darkness, a light shines. John prepares for the coming of the king by calling upon all people to what? To repent. The king is here. And John says, I got to get out of the way. As one person says, John is like the best man at a wedding. Do you remember your best man? His job is, of course, to hold the ring, to not faint and fall down, and then to get out of the way right? You're not looking at the best man. That's what John's job is. And John was kind of a strange character, right? He's eating locusts and honey. He's out in the wilderness. And as you look at those pictures from your wedding, you realize my best man was a strange looking dude too. Who is this guy? John wants people to to know Jesus must increase. I must decrease. That's what faithful preaching is about. The messenger himself decreases, like a good umpire in a baseball game. He kind of disappears. And we ask this question every time we gather, does the preached word magnify Jesus in my heart? That's what John's about. That's what we're about. He was a humble man. He said, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, meaning the lowest job that the lowest person in society still wouldn't do. John says, I can't even begin there. When it comes to Jesus. In that day, feet were really dirty. In our house, sometimes we have really smelly feet. And maybe it's me. Maybe that's the problem. And you're thinking, that's got to go away. What are we going to do with that smell and those socks? Well, feet in that day were even more dirty and smelly. Consider this, loved ones. Jesus becomes the servant of sinners and washes his disciples' feet. A stunning reversal. It shows what the gospel is all about. John also shows his humility by saying, my baptism is much less in importance to Jesus' baptism. And it's interesting. John tells us Jesus was a baptizer. You see that? John's baptism was for repentance. But what did Jesus baptize? What does it say? It says that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This reminds us there's a whole theology of baptism that begins in the Old Testament. That baptism is a judgment ordeal. Whenever 
you have been baptized, or whatever baptism is talking about in the Old and New Testament. It's either a blessing or a curse. Do you remember the Red Sea? The Red Sea was a baptism, and God brought his people safely through, and those same floodwaters, 1 Corinthians 10, were judgment on Pharaoh and his armies, a judgment ordeal. The flood in Noah's day was a baptism, 1 Peter 3. The same floodwaters that God brought Noah and his family safely through in the ark were waters of judgment on the unbelieving world. Meaning, the flood is a type or a foreshadowing of New Testament baptism. And now we read about fire and spirit baptism. And John thinks Jesus is going to bring that down right away on the Pharisees, on any who are outside of Christ. But as you read the New Testament, you see it's not that way right away, is it? The fire and spirit baptism that John is talking about that Jesus will do is fulfilled in some way at Pentecost, isn't it? When not fires of judgment come down, but tongues of fire come down. When people hear the gospel and they are cut to the heart and they say, what must I do to be saved? And Peter says to them, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Spirit comes, bringing the work of Christ into the hearts of the people of God, bringing repentance, reminding us, as Peter said, that that promise of salvation is for you and your children and all who are afar off, all the nations that the Lord will call to himself. So, loved ones, Christian baptism, just as an application here, is the public entrance into the visible church. It's not private. Yes, it's personal, but it's public. God is doing something here. God is putting his name upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, marking you off from the world, putting you into the ark, so to speak. Now, the waters don't bring salvation. Even all those in the ark weren't saved, were they? There's a distinction between the internal and external covenant community. Not all Israel is Israel. Not all who receive the outward sign, baptism, Receive inwardly what it signifies, Christ and his benefits. Covenant children, the blessing of your baptism is that God himself put his promise upon you, and the call of baptism is to live a life of repentance and faith and obedience. We never would get up at a funeral and say, aha, that person is saved just because of their baptism. We would never say that. The Bible never says that. It says that baptism points you to Jesus. If we believe the waters of baptism just save automatically, R.C. Sproul said, I would get on the corner of the street with a fire hose and blast away and baptize everyone that could come within any possible distance from this. Baptism is a sacrament of the visible gospel. The power lies in the word and the spirit of God. John preaches this message. He preaches about repentance. Look what he says in verse 12. He takes an image from a farm. At harvest time, kids, a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. They would toss the grain in the air, 
with a winnowing fork. The wheat falls to the ground. The lighter chaff gets blown into a pile. The wheat is what? Gathered and kept, put into barns, so you make bread out of it. The chaff is burned with unquenchable fire. In the visible church today, wheat and chaff are together. One day, they will be separated. One day, Christ will sift humans and make a separation. The wheat gathered into the storehouses of heaven. The chaff burned in eternal hell forever. John is warning the people in his day and all of us of that reality. And when he preached this message, not surprisingly, some people hated it. Luke's gospel talks of Herod, the son of Herod the Great, who was living in sexual immorality. And John addresses it and calls Herod to repent. Herod, you divorced your wife. You married your niece who was married to your brother. John says, you can't do that, Herod. Repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. And Herod throws him into prison. That's six months after this event in Matthew 3. John is in prison in the fortress of Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. And six months after that, he's beheaded. The faithful ministry of the word does not always result in people trusting Christ by faith. Sometimes it results in people hating the message, hating the messenger, and putting him to death. John fades away, but not before we see, secondly, the baptism of Christ. In Matthew 3, you see this title that John is called over and over again. And kids, what is it? He is called John the Presbyterian. I'm sorry, that's an old R.C. Sproul joke. It wasn't that funny, I'm sorry. No, he's called John the Baptist. You got all these people coming to him to be baptized from all over the place. And then who shows up? This should be shocking to us. It should be troubling to us. Jesus shows up. He walks the 60 or 70 miles from Nazareth to where John is in the wilderness. Nazareth, remember from a few weeks back? This town that no one is from, that no one wants to claim to be from, that Nathaniel said nothing good comes from. That's where Jesus comes from. And so the promise of Isaiah is being fulfilled. The messenger, John, is preparing the way for the Lord. So if John is the messenger preparing the way for the Lord, who is Jesus? He's the Lord. He's God. And he gets in line with all the others who are there for the baptism. Picture this. All these people. And at first, John's gospel tells us that John the Baptist didn't recognize him. Here is Jesus. So there's not a halo on his head. He's not wearing these messianic vestments, there were no such thing, and he's in line with everyone else. Isaiah 53 says there's no beauty outwardly that we should desire him. Eventually, John does recognize him. Remember, they're cousins. They're born six months apart, and this is the only time in the New Testament that we know of that their ministries are together in the same place at the same time. 
Why should this shock you? Because John's baptism is a baptism of what? Repentance. Your baptism, which is different than John's, but your Christian baptism is the visible sign of the gospel. It's all about forgiveness of sins. As water washes away dirt, the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And here comes the Lamb of God who is spotless, who is sinless, to be baptized with a baptism for the repentance of sins. John says, no, I need to be baptized by you. What's going on here? We read our Bibles fully together, don't we? Jesus is the greater Moses, leading his people on an exodus from sin. In Exodus, they're delivered from Egypt. They come where, children? To a body of water, the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea, which is a baptism. Moses leads them across. God's people are identified with Moses through the water, it says. Later in the Old Testament, Joshua, the second Moses, takes the people across, this time what water? The Jordan River. Leading them where? Into the promised land. Now Jesus, out of Egypt, I have called my son. The deliverer comes, and for the Savior To be the Savior, he must go through some sort of water baptism ordeal. Charles Barrett wonderfully shows that to us. Why did he come? Matthew 3.15. To fulfill for us, Jesus is talking about him and John the Baptist here, all righteousness. Fulfill, meaning complete. Jesus fulfills the story of Israel, the exodus the conquest, the kingdom, the exile, the restoration. He fulfills all of it. He's saying, John, look at the big picture. How do I bring spirit and fire baptism? Well, I first enter the exile and repentance of Israel. Jesus is sinless. He doesn't need to be exiled. But he identifies with Israel and with all of his people in every way. Yet, without sin. In our baptism, we are identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection. So his death and resurrection is ours as we trust him by faith. In Jesus' baptism by John, Jesus identifies with us. He takes on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness that he might be the perfect savior and substitute for sinners. This is called his active obedience. Meaning, children, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He achieved the perfect righteousness that God the Father requires of us to be in the presence of a holy God. We're sinners. We need this righteousness. He's fulfilling that right here. His life is vicarious. He lived and died as a substitute for his people, identifying with sinners. Here's one way, kids, that might help. Maybe your mom and dad say, no, you can't do that. No, you can't play video games for 12 hours straight. 
without a break. You can't do it. And you might say, oh, I want to do that. I'm sure you don't say that, but you might say it. And then mom and dad say, well, one day when you're in my shoes, you'll understand and you'll say to your kids, there's no 12-hour video game day. One day you'll understand. You'll be in my shoes. Jesus, loved ones, is identifying with you. He himself is taking the place of a sinner in baptism alongside of a sinner, even though he's not a sinner. He is knowing your need, coming down, being numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53. Your bruised reeds were faintly burning wicks. He doesn't come to crush you. He comes to reignite you by his spirit. He comes to obey the will of his Father and to take your name on himself in baptism. God gives you his name when he baptizes you, when you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus takes our name. He becomes sin for us who knew no sin. This is a water judgment, this baptism. Like a trumpet blasting. There's war. Sin must be dealt with. Jesus takes the role of a covenant breaker, of a vicarious substitute. In the Old Testament, do you remember the priests had to be washed with water, sprinkled with blood? John, who is the son of a priest, is consecrating Jesus for this priesthood. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, he's washed with water. And he will speak in the New Testament of another baptism. Do you remember that he has to undergo? Mark 10. He was always thinking about this baptism. It was always before his eyes. Jesus would speak of his baptism, which is his death on the cross. The cross is his sprinkling with blood. John the Baptist didn't realize this. But when he talked of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire, that fire would come down on Christ. Jesus would be baptized with the fire of God's judgment in our place, showing us what we deserve. So we come through the waters of judgment. We don't drown. We're not consumed by the wrath of God in hell because God's judgment falls on Jesus as we trust him by faith. Jesus is the ark. The filth of my sin is washed away in judgment as it's judged in Christ on the cross. We go through a judgment baptism through Jesus' death, and by Jesus' resurrection, we've been brought to new life. We're united to Christ. Because he went through this, we are reckoned to have died with him, And been raised with him. That's why there's no condemnation for you in Christ. On the cross, loved ones, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. And he turns around and as you trust him by faith, he treats you as if you lived his. His righteousness is imputed to your account. This has enormous implications. As you wake up tomorrow, weary or sick, and as you're weary and struggling and anxious and afraid as you struggle with sins over and over again. 
We talked about repentance last week, didn't we? Do we ever repent perfectly? No. We have to repent of our repentance. Our repentance doesn't earn us anything. It's the fruit of faith in Christ. We can never repent enough. But God accepts your imperfect repentance for the sake of his son, who for your sake entered this water of baptism of repentance and offers before God his righteousness soaring above your sin. So you trust in Christ by his merit because of the work that he did and offers to the Father. God says you're forgiven. You're righteous. So you have a dark hour of conflict. Some days you get up and you're ready to go. You feel great. Other days you're in bed. You're struggling. You're dealing with sins that you've committed, that you wrestle with, that are wicked and heinous and despicable and humiliating. You're dealing with your lack of love and our selfishness and our pride. And you're remembering how little we think of Christ. How easy it is to meditate on ourselves, to be turned in on ourselves. How little we think of Christ and his glory. And your sin and shame and humiliation and offenses, you're feeling the weight of it. Jesus says, I take all that on me. That sin that you think no one can heal, no one can forgive, no one can help you with, I take it all. I'm not removed from you. I came, Jesus says, to identify with sinners. I came to seek and to save the lost. Third, the confirmation of the Christ. There's a historian who's not a Christian. His name was Josephus. He said there were over 60 people alive in the first century at the time of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. How do we know Jesus is the Messiah? Because of what we see in his baptism. Both Barrett and Swain say this. When you read a gospel narrative, and as you, I hope you're reading through Matthew with us, the gospels show their doctrine. The confessions, like the Athanasian Creed, define it. We need both. But the gospels don't say this is a duck, kids. They say there's an animal over there that's quacking and yellow and it has webbed feet. And you say, kids, that's a, a duck. So the Gospels are showing you the Trinity here. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. But that's who God is. When you read the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, in the Old Testament, that is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Jesus is baptized, what happens here? Look at verse 16. The windows of heaven are opened. The clouds are parted by the hand of God. When heaven opens in the Bible, what does that mean? Two things. God appears and God speaks. Heaven opened up to let heaven come down and let heaven be heard. 
for a short time in this baptism, the barricade between this world and heaven is set aside. Isaiah said this would happen. Oh, Isaiah 64, the heavens would be rendered apart, torn apart. God will come down to save his people. Ezekiel 1, the prophet by the river sees a vision of God as heaven is opened. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the pre-incarnate Son of God there in all his glory. Isaiah sees the sun lifted up. Acts 7, Stephen, as he's being killed, looks up and he saw heaven opened and he saw the Lord. The crucifixion of Jesus. The curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Revelation 19 the return of Jesus, the heavens will be opened and he will return on a white horse to conquer. That's what we're talking about here. A Red Sea and Jordan River-like scene where just as the Red Sea parted and the Jordan River, heaven parts and down comes the Holy Spirit. The dawn of a new era. The kingdom of God is breaking into this present evil age. The king has come to conquer, to defeat sin and death and hell. The Father and the Spirit are confirming for you in this event the authority that Jesus has. He has authority to give eternal life, to forgive sins, to heal the sick over the wind and demons to teach the Bible, to commission the church, to lay down his life, to take it up again. He has all authority in heaven and earth today in your life and all that happens. He's anointed by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, a priest had to be 30 years old, Numbers 8, and then he would be baptized. Do you know that? And then cleansed to serve in the temple of God. Here is Christ, the perfect high priest, the perfect king. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on Moses and Joshua and Samson and David. Here is Jesus being anointed for the task that he's about to fulfill. Now you say, well, he was conceived by the Spirit, right? Yeah. He was filled with the Spirit's wisdom as a boy. We see that throughout the Gospels. But we also remember Isaiah 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. We remember that Jesus is fully God, truly God, yes. But that doesn't mean he doesn't need the Holy Spirit, right? John 15. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the bond of love and glory between the Father and the Son. The Son needs the Spirit. The Spirit sustains and empowers the Son in his work of redemption. We are seeing things so glorious here that we can't even begin to comprehend. And how does the Spirit come? Does he come like an eagle, kids, to devour dead animals? Or like an osprey to catch a fish out of the water? He comes as a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. The spirit does not have a body. Some say 
that the Spirit descended here in the way that a dove descends. Others say he descended and assumed the form of a dove at this time, but not that he is a dove. That's important to understand. Jesus spoke of a dove in Matthew 10. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents. And what? Gentle as doves. The dove suggests Jesus' gentleness. He's gentle and lowly. He's meek. That doesn't mean weak. Meekness is strength under control. He's not proud like a peacock. A dove, a poor person could offer a dove as a sacrifice, Luke 2. Purity, gentleness, graciousness. That's who Christ is. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Dear Christian, does purity, gentleness, meekness, graciousness characterize us as a church? Does that characterize your marriage? Your friendships? By God's grace, that's what we are praying for. The Spirit comes to remind us of a new creation. Do you remember Noah, kids? The flood, the heavens are opened, the earth is flooded. Noah, after the flood, sends what? A dove. The dove brings back an olive leaf, the sign of the new creation. The same Spirit that hovered over the waters in creation anoints the sun in the new creation. Jesus brings the new creation. The Spirit descends, and what else? The Father speaks. Where is the Trinity in the Bible? It's all over the Bible. The Father says, you are my beloved Son. Where does that come from? Psalm 2, where the nations are raging. And God sits in heaven, and it says he laughs. Why? Because he has set his king on his holy hill, his son. Psalm 2, the father speaks to the son. Isaiah 42, the father says, My servant in whom I delight, I have put my what? Spirit on him. There's the trinity in the Old Testament, and that's what's being fulfilled here. The father speaks The Spirit comes. Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Both Isaac and Jesus were descendants of Abraham, sons of Abraham. Isaac's life is spared. Jesus' life is not. All of this is in the background here. As you read Mark chapter 1, Mark brings this out and he says, quoting Isaiah 40, I send my messenger before your face. Very interesting passage, Mark 1, 2. I, who's that? God. My messenger, who's that? John the Baptist. Your face. Who's that? The baptism of Jesus tells us it's the Son. Who is the Lord speaking to the Lord about the coming of the Lord? The Father who is God speaks to the Son who is God and endows him for his mission with the Spirit who is God. 
Whose face? The father says, you are my beloved son. The son's face. What affection the father has for his son. Those of us who are sons know how much the approval of our father matters. Fathers, please tell your sons and your daughters you love them. Genuinely, not just to do it, if you really do love them. Affirm them in the right way, not flattery. With you, I'm well pleased, the father says to the son. He's pleased with the son because of who the son is, because of what the son does. He's never not been pleased with the son. This is a part of the intimate, joyous, perpetual fellowship in the Trinity. The father delights in the son. The son delights in the father. Luke tells us that as he's being baptized, what is Jesus doing? He's praying. He's communing with his father. He loves to be with his father. Dear Christian, this should be an encouragement to us. If we don't eat, we starve. If we don't drink water, we dehydrate. There are physical means of life and there are spiritual means of grace. Prayer is one of them. Word, sacrament, prayer, coming together on the Lord's Day, we need this as much as we need to breathe. To neglect it is to say, well, I just don't need food. I don't need to breathe. We need one another. We need the company of each other. We need the Spirit among us. And we need to pray, remembering we're talking to our Father. This helps us in our weakness. You come today tempted. You come today weary at times. Some of you sick. The Father's words of affection and approval are for his Son and for everyone who trusts in Jesus by faith today. If we stood before God on our own, we would not be pleasing to God. But we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you are pleasing to God, the Father, today in Christ. This should help you in your Christian life, encourage you. The Father loves you. The Father is pleased with you, Christian. You have the assurance of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. You say, well, I don't know what the Father's like. If you want to know what the Father's like, look at Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. Assurance in the Spirit. The same Spirit that came on Jesus in his baptism comes upon you, Christian. That Spirit is with us as we worship, as we pray, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism. We pray, Holy Spirit, dwell among us today. And this promise points to your own baptism. You were baptized, Christian, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not names, plural. The name, one name. That's God's proper name. God is one. The name belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when you are baptized, the Father pledged to be your Father, to adopt you as sons and daughters. He made an eternal covenant of grace with you in Christ. 
In your baptism, the Son pledged to be your Redeemer in your head, to wash you in his blood, to incorporate you into the fellowship of his death and resurrection. In your baptism, the Spirit assured you that he lives in you, that he sanctifies you, that he leads you to your eternal inheritance, that the Spirit himself is the down payment of that inheritance. Baptism is everything the triune God promises to be for us and to give us through the gospel. It's God's pledge to you. Through the gospel, God is your father. Christ is your elder brother. The spirit is in your heart. You cry out, Abba, Father, and you find satisfaction fully and finally in this triune God. God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed Trinity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, most blessed triune God, we thank you that you have made us. And at the cost of your Son, Father, and by the Holy Spirit, you have willed to make us happy and eternally joyful in Christ. Father, work in our hearts that the triune God, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be the supreme treasure of our lives, of your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.